Section 16 of Astounding Stories 7, July 1930. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Astounding Stories 7, July 1930, by Various. The Forgotten Planet by Sewell Peasley Wright. Idol, with his ten men, were waiting for me at the forward exit. The man fell back a few paces and came to attention. Idol saluted smartly. We're ready, sir. What are your orders? You are to guard this opening. Under no circumstances is anyone to enter save myself. I shall be gone not longer than three hours. If I am not back within the time, Mr. Barry has his orders. The exit will be sealed, and the Taman will depart immediately, without me. Yes, sir. You will pardon me, but I gather that your mission is a dangerous one. May I not accompany you? I shook my head. I shall need you here. But, sir, they are very excited and angry. I have been watching them from the observation ports, and there is a vast crowd of them around the ship. I had expected that. I thank you for your concern, but I must go alone. Those are the orders. Will you unseal the exit? His yes, sir, was brisk and deficient, but there was a worried frown on his features as he unlocked and released the switch that opened the exit. The huge plug of metal, some ten feet in diameter, revolved swiftly and noiselessly, backing slowly in its fine threads into the interior of the ship, gripped by the ponderous chimbles which, as the last threads disengaged, swung the mighty disk to one side, like the door of some great safe. Remember your orders. I smiled, and with a little gesture to convey an assurance which I certainly didn't feel, I strode through the circular opening out into the crowd. The heavy glass secondary door shut down behind me, and I was in the hands of the enemy. The first thing I observed was that my manner, which I had picked up on my way to the exit, wasn't functioning. Not a person in all that vast multitude wore a manner. The five black-robed dignitaries who marched to meet me were known. Nothing could have showed more clearly that I was in for trouble. To invite a visitor, as Scarlett had done, to remove his manner first, was of course a polite and courteous thing to do if one wished to communicate by speech. To remove the manner before greeting a visitor wearing one was a tacit admission of rank enmity a confession that one's thirds were to be concealed. My first impulse was to snatch off my own instrument and fling it in the solemn, ugly faces of the nearest of the five dignitaries. I remembered Callan's warning just in time. Quietly I removed the metal socket and tucked it under my arm, bowing slightly to the committee of five as I did so. Oh, him, Jobin said the first of the five, with an evil grin. You are the representative of the consul that we commanded to appear? I'm John Hanson, commander of the ship Tamon of the Special Patrol Service. 
I'm here to represent the Central Council. I replied with dignity. As we commanded. Great Jaban. That is good. Follow us and you shall have the evidence you were promised. Jaban led the way with two of his black robe followers. The other two fell in behind me. A virtual prisoner, I marched between them through the vast crowd that made way grudgingly to let us pass. I have seen the people of most of the planets of the known universe. Many of them to Earth notions are odd, but these people, so much like us in many respects, were strangely repulsive. Their heads, as Amy Bayovi had recorded, were not round like ours, but possessed a high bony crest that ran from between their lashless, browless eyes down to the very nape of their necks. Their skin, even that covering their hairless heads, was dull and papery white, like parchment, and their eyes were abnormally small and nearly round. A hateful, ugly people, perpetually scowling, snarling, their very voices resembled more the growl of wild beasts than the speech of intelligent beings. Jaben led the way straight to the low but vast building of dun-colored stone that I knew was the administration building of the control city. We marched up the broad, crowded steps through the muttering, jeering multitude into the building itself. The guards at the door stood aside to let us through, and the crowd at last was left behind. A swift cylindrical elevator shot us upward into a great glass world laboratory, built like a sort of penthouse on the roof. Jaban walked quickly across the room towards a long, glass-topped table. The other four closed in on me silently, but suggestively. That is unnecessary, I said quietly. See, I am unarmed and completely in your power. I am here as an ambassador of the Central Council, not as a warrior. Which is well for you, great Jaban. What I have to show you, you can see quickly and then depart. From a great cabinet in one corner of the room, he took a shining cylinder of dark red metal and held it up before me, stroking its sleek sides with an affectionate hand. Here it is, he said, chuckling. The secret of our power. In here, safely imprisoned now, but capable of being released at our command, is death for every living thing upon any planet we choose to destroy. Here placed the great cylinder in the cabinet, and picked up in its stead a tiny vial of the same metal, no larger than my little finger, and not so long. Here, he said, turning again towards me. Is the means of proving our power to you. Come closer. With my bodyguard of four watching every move, I approached. Jaban selected a large hollow hemisphere of crystal glass and placed it upon a smooth sheet of flat glass. Next, he picked a few blossoms from a bowl that stood incongruously enough on the table and threw them under the glass hemisphere. Flora! He grinned. Hurrying to the other end of the room, he 
reached into a large flat metal cage and brought forth three small rodent-like animals, natives of that world. These he also tossed carelessly under the glass. For now, he grunted and picked out the tiny metal vial. One end of the vial unscrewed. He turned the cap gently, carefully, a strained, anxious look upon his face. My four guards watched him breathlessly, fearfully. The cap came loose at last, disclosing the end of the tube, sealed with a grayish substance that looked like wax. Very quickly, Jaban rolled the little cylinder under the glass hemisphere and picked up a beaker that had been bubbling gently on an electric plate close by. Swiftly he poured the thick contents of the beaker around the base of the glass bell. The stuff hardened almost instantly, forming an airtight seal between the glass hemisphere and the flat plate of glass upon which it rested. Then, with an evil, triumphant smile, Jaban looked up. Flora! He repeated, Fauna and death. Watch. The little metal cylinder is plugged still, but in a moment that plug will disappear. Simply a volatile solid, you understand. It's going rapidly. Rapidly. It's almost gone now. Watch. In an instant now. Ah! I saw the gray substance that stopped the entrance of the little metal vial disappear. The rodents ran around and over it, trying to find a crevice by which they might escape. The flowers, bright and beautiful, lay untidily on the bottom of the glass prison. Then, just as the last vestige of the gray plaque vanished, an amazing, a terrible thing happened. At the mouth of a tiny metal vial a greenish cloud appeared. I call it a cloud, but it wasn't that. It was solid, and it spread in every direction, sending out little needles that lashed about and ran together into a solid mass while millions of little needles reached out swiftly. One of these little needles touched a scouring animal. Instantly the tiny brute stiffened, and from his entire body the greenish needles spread swiftly. One of the flowers turned suddenly thick and pulpy with a soft green mass, then another, another of the rodents. God! In the space of two heartbeats, the entire hemisphere was filled with the green mass that still moved and writhed and seemed to press against the glass sides, as though the urge to expand was insistent, imperative. What is it? I whispered, still staring at the thing. Death! grunted Jaban, thrusting his hateful face close to mine, his tiny round eyes with their lashless lids glinting. Death, my friend, go and tell your great council of this death that we have created for every planet that will not obey us. We have gone back into the history of dealing death and have come back with a death such as the universe has never known before. Here is a rapacious, deadly fungus we have been two centuries in developing. The spores contained in that tiny metal tube will be invisible to the naked eye, and yet given by a little time to grow 
with the air and vegetation and flesh to feed upon, and even that small capsule would wipe out a world. And in the cabinet, he pointed grinning triumphantly, we have ready for instant use enough of the spores of this deadly fungus to wipe out all the worlds of your great alliance. To wipe them out utterly, he repeated, his voice shaking with a sort of frenzy now. Every living thing upon their faces, wrapped in that thin, hungry green stuff you see there under that glass, all life wiped out, made uninhabitable so long as the universe shall endure, and we, we shall be rulers, unquestioned of that universe. Tell your doddering council that. He leaned back against the table, panting with hate. I shall tell them all I have seen, all you have said. I nodded. You believe we have the power to do all this? I do, God help me, and the universe. I said solemnly. There was no doubt in my mind. I could see all too clearly how well their plans had been laid how quickly this hellish growth would strangle all life, once its spores began to develop. The only possible chance was to get back to the Council and make my report, with all possible speed, so that every available armed ship of the universe might concentrate here, and wipe out these people before they had time to... I know what are you thinking, my friend, broke in Jaban mockingly. You might as well have warned the manor. You will have the ships of the Alliance destroy us before we have time to act. We had foreseen that, and I have provided for the possibility. As soon as you leave here, ships provided with many tubes like the one just used for our little demonstration will be dispersed in every direction. We shall be in constant communication with those ships and at the least sign of hostility, they will be ordered to depart and spread their death upon every world they can reach. Some of them you may be able to locate and eliminate. A number of them are certain to elude capture in infinite space, and if only one, one lone ship, should escape, the doom of the Alliance and millions upon millions of people will be pronounced. I warn you, it will be better, much better, to bow to our wishes, and pay us the tribute we shall demand. Any attempt at resistance will participate certain disaster for your council, and all the worlds the council governs. At least we would wipe you out first. I said hoarsely. True, nodded Jaban. But the vengeance of our ships would be a terrible thing. You wouldn't dare to take the chance. I stood there staring at him in a sort of daze. What he had said was so true, terribly, damnably true. If only... There was but one chance I could see, and desperate as it was, I took it. Whirling the heavy metal ring of my manor in my hand, I sprang towards the table. If I could break the sealed glass hemisphere and lose the fungus upon its creators, deal to them the doom they had planned for the universe, 
then perhaps all might yet be well. Jaban understood instantly what was in my mind. He and his four A's slipped between me and the table, their tiny round eyes blazing with anger. I struck one of the four viciously with the matter, and with a gasp he fell back and slumped to the floor. Before I could break through the opening, however, Jaban struck me full in the face with his mighty fist a blow that sent me, dazed and reeling, into a corner of the room. I brought up with a crash against the cabinet there, growled wildly in an effort to steady myself, and fell to the floor. Almost before I struck, all four of them were upon me. They hammered me viciously, shouted at me, cursed me in the universal tongue, but I paid no heed. I pretended to be unconscious, but my heart was beating high with sudden, glorious hope, and in my brain a terrible, merciless plan was forming. When I groped again the cabinet in an effort to regain my balance, my fingers had closed upon one of the little metal vials. As I fell, I covered that hand with my body, and hastily hid the tiny tube in a deep pocket of my blue and silver service uniform. Slowly, after a few seconds, I opened my eyes and looked up at them, helplessly. Go now, snarled Jaban, dragging me to my feet. Go and tell your counsel we are more than a match for you and for them. He thrust me reeling towards his three assistants. Take him to his ship and send aid for Ify runs here. He glanced at the still unconscious figure of the victim of my manner, and then turned to me with a last warning. Remember one thing more, my friend. You have disintegrator ray equipment upon your ship. You have the little atomic bombs that won for the Alliance the Second War of the Planets. I know that. But if you make the slightest effort to use them, I shall dispatch a supply of the Green Death to our ships, and they will depart upon their missions at once. You would take upon yourself a terrible responsibility by making the smallest hostile move. Go now, and when you return, bring with you members of your great council who will have the power to hear our demands and see that they are obeyed. And don't keep us waiting over long, for we are an impatient race. He bowed mockingly and passed his left hand swiftly before his face, his people's sign of parting. I nodded, not trusting myself to speak, and hemmed in by my three black robed conductors, was hurried down the elevator and back through the dreary mob to my ship. The glass secondary door shot up to permit me to enter. An idol gripped my shoulder anxiously, his eyes smoldering angrily. You are hurt, sir, he said in his odd high-pitched voice, staring into my bruised face. What? It's nothing, I assured him. Closed the exit immediately. We depart at once. Yes, sir. He closed the switch and the great threaded plug swung gently on its jimbles and began to revolve swiftly and silently. A little bell sounded sharply, 
and the gray door ceased its motion. Eitel locked the switch and returned the key to his pocket. Good. All men are at their stations? I asked briskly. Yes, sir. All except these ten, detailed to guard the exit. Have them report to their regular stations. Issue orders to the ray operators that they are to instantly and without further orders destroy any ship that may leave the surface of this planet. Have every atomic bomb crew ready for an instant and concentrated offensive directed at the control city, but command them not to act under any circumstances unless I give the order. Is that clear, Mr. Eitel? Yes, sir. I nodded and turned away, making my way immediately to the navigating room. Mr. Barry, I said quickly and gravely, I believe that the fate of the known universe depends upon us at this moment. We will ascend vertically, at once, slowly, until we are just outside the envelope, maintaining only sufficient horizontal motion to keep us directly off the control city. Will you give the necessary orders? Immediately, sir. He pressed the attention button to the operating room and spoke swiftly into the microphone before he completed the order I had left. We were already ascending when I reached the port forward atomic bomb station. The man in charge, a Zenian, saluted with automatic precision and awaited orders. You have a bomb in readiness? I asked, returning the salute. Those were my orders, sir. Correct. Remove it, please. I waited impatiently while the crew removed the bomb from the releasing trap. It was withdrawn at last. Fish-shaped affair, very much like the ancient airplane bombs, save that it was no larger than my two fists placed one upon the other, and that it had four silver wires running along its sides, from rounded nose to pointed tail held at distance from the body by a series of insulating struts. Now, I said, how quickly can you put another object in the trap, reseal the opening and release the object? While the commander counts ten with reasonable speed, said the Xenian with pride, we won first honors in the special patrol service contests at the last examination. The commander may remember. I do remember. That is why I selected you for this duty. With hands that trembled a little, I think, I drew forth the little vial of gleaming red metal, while the bombing crew watched me curiously. I shall unscrew the cap from this little vial, I explained, and drop it immediately into the releasing trap. Reseal the trap and release this object as quickly as it's possible to do so. If you can better the time you made to win the honors at the examination, in God's name, do so. Yes, sir, replied the Xenian. He gave brisk orders to his crew, and each of the three men sprang alertly into position. As quickly as I could, I turned off the cap of the little metal vial and dropped it into the trap. The heavy plug, a tiny duplicate of the exit door, clicked shut upon it and it spun, winding gently into the opening. Something clicked sharply, and one of the crew dropped a bar into place. As it shot home, the Xenian in command of the crew pulled the release plunger. Done, sir, 
he said proudly. I didn't reply, my eye fixed upon the observation tube that was following the tiny missile to the ground. The control city was directly below us. I lost sight of the vial almost instantly, but the indicating crosshairs showed me exactly where the vial would strike, at a point approximately halfway between the edge of the city and the gray squat pile of the administrating building, with its gleaming glass penthouse, the laboratory in which, only a few minutes before I had witnessed the demonstration of the death which awaited the universe. Excellent, I exclaimed. Smartly done, man. I turned and hurried to the navigating room, where the most powerful of our television discs was located. The disc wasn't as perfect as those we have today. It was hooded to keep out exterior light, which isn't necessary with the later instruments, and it was more unwieldy. However, it did its work, and it did it well in the hands of an experienced operator. With only a knot to bury, I turned the range band to maximum, and brought it swiftly to bear upon that portion of the city in which the little vial had fallen. As I drew the focusing lever towards me, the scene leaped at me through the clear, glowing glass disk. Froth, green, billowing froth that grew and boiled and spread unseasonally. In places it reached high into the air, and it moved with an eager inner life that was somehow terrible and revolting. I moved the range hand back, and the view seemed to drop away from me swiftly. I could see the whole city now. All one side of it was covered with a spreading green stain that moved and flowed so swiftly. Thousands of tiny black figures were running in the streets crowding away from the awful danger that menaced them. The green patch spread more swiftly always. When I had first seen it, the edges were advancing as rapidly as men could run. Now they were fairly racing, and the speed grew constantly. A ship, two of them, three of them came darting from somewhere towards the administration building with its glass cupola. I held my breath at the deep, sudden humming from the tame and told me that our race were busy. Would they? One of the enemy ships disappeared suddenly in a little cloud of dirty, heavy dust that settled swiftly. Another, and the third. Three little streaks of dust, falling, falling. A fourth ship, and a fifth came rushing up their sides faintly glowing from the speed they had made. The green flood, thick and insistent, was racing up and over the administration building now. It reached the roof, ran swiftly. The fourth ship shattered into dust. The fifth settled swiftly, and then that ship also disappeared, together with a corner of the building. Then the thick green stuff flowed over the whole building and there was nothing to be seen there but a mound of soft, flowing gray-green stuff that rushed on now with the swiftness of the wind. I looked up into Barry's face. You are ill, he said quickly. Is there anything I can do, sir? Yes, I said, forming the words with difficulty. 
give orders to ascend at emergency speed. For once my first officer hesitated. He glanced at the attraction meter and then turned to me again, wondering. At this height, sir, emergency speed will mean dangerous heating of the surface. Perhaps I want it white hot, Mr. Barry. She is built to stand it. Emergency speed, please, immediately. Right, sir, he said briskly and gave the order. I felt my weight increase as the order was obeyed. Gradually the familiar, uncomfortable feeling left me. Silently, Barry and I watched the big surface temperature gauge as it started to move. The heat inside became uncomfortable, grew intense. The sweat poured from us. In the operating room forward, I could see the man casting quick, wandering glances up at us through the heavy glass partition that lay between. The thick, stubby red hand of the surface temperature gauge moved slowly but steadily towards the heavy red line that marked the temperature at which the outer shell of our hull would become incandescent. The hand was within three or four degrees of that mark when I gave Barry the order to arrest our motion. When he had given the order, I turned to him and motioned towards the television disc. Look, I said. He looked, and when at last he tore his face away from the hood, he seemed ten years older. What is it? He asked in a choked whisper. Why? They are being wiped out. The whole of that world. True. And some of the seas of the terrible death might have drifted upward and found a lodging place upon the surface of our ship. That is why I ordered you the emergency speed while we were still within the atmospheric envelope, Barry. To burn away that contamination, if it existed. Now we are safe, unless... I pressed the attention button to the station of the chief of the ray operators. Your report, I ordered. Nine ships disintegrated, sir. He replied instantly. Five before the city was destroyed, four later. You are certain that none escaped? Positive, sir. Very good. I turned to Barry, smiling. Point her nose for Xenia, Mr. Barry, I said. As soon as it's feasible, resume emergency speed. There are some very anxious gentlemen there awaiting our report, and I dare not convey it except in person. Yes, sir, said Barry crisply. This, then, is the history of the forgotten planet. On the charts of the universe it appears as an unnamed world. No ship is permitted to pass close enough to it, so that its attraction is greater than that of the nearest other mass. A permanent outpost of fixed station ships, with headquarters upon Jaron, the closest world, is maintained by the Council. There are millions of people who might be greatly disturbed if they knew of this potential menace that lurks in the midst of our universe, but they don't know. The wisdom of the Council made certain of that. But in order that in the ages to come there might be a record of this matter, 
I have been asked to prepare this document for the sealed archives of the Alliance. It has been a pleasant task. I have relieved for a little time a part of my youth. This work is done now, and that is well. I am an old man and weary. Sometimes I wish I might live to see the wonders that the next generations or so will witness, but my years are heavy upon me. My work is done. End of section 16